Here we go. All right. In three, nice. two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. This year, Christmas came early. I thought, what better way to celebrate the holidays than to bring past guests in, have you sit down and ask them the questions that you always wanted to know from them. And tonight, the very first, as he calls himself the test dummy, Sarm Major in the Green Berets, and uh, ex-male model and starting his OnlyFans page, Charles Chuck Ritter. What's going on, my friend? What's up, man? I mean, I'm this, so glad the only uh, fan doesn't have my rank associated with it, right? Because you can't promote that with the military or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, we, we can take stage that name. Over. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> what's been going on, man? With this, almost didn't happen. We, uh, you had a big uh, explosion or something where you were. There wasn't any power. This almost didn't happen. So, let's talk about that first off. It wasn't an explosion. It was a couple people, or however many people they don't know running around shooting up a couple sub substations around here in, in Moore County, which I think it was Saturday night. We, that went down and then we didn't have power till Wednesday. So that was pretty cool, man. I'm talking uh, like the whole County, like 40, 45,000 people. So do they, do they know what happened or why they did it or anything like that? I don't know. They said they had some, some warrants for some phone records and you know, there's rumors and stuff going around about that. They have an idea, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? Well, so, you know, there's a lot going on in the news right now. You said that there were some protests there and stuff like that. So the biggest news that I guess you and I can talk about is uh, we have got the good news that we're getting Brittany Grenier back in the United States, and uh, mm -hmm. we have traded her for the Merchant of Death. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what you think about that. I mean, I'm always conflicted, right, because I try to be a, an optimist. I've seen both sides of the arguments, right? Um, but she's an American, right? We got her back. There's still other Americans over there, right? They're no more or less important in my mind. Um, so what is, it, what is it worth to trade an American? I mean, it's, that's a tough one, man. Like, you know, if I was a politician and, and I had those decisions to make, I can't say that, you know, oh, this is all jacked up. Um, I have my personal feelings, which I might not voice, you know, specifically right here. Um, but overall, I think that she's an American citizen, whether you agree with her shenanigans or not, it's one thing. I think that the one thing that makes this country so badass is that we have the ability to sit in this country and, and criticize our own government. You can't do that in other places. In, in Russia right now, for example, if if you go just say something against the military operation or, you know, one person went to jail for 16 years because they were putting price tags, <clears throat> like on some of the shopping stores, that just said something about the the, the war, right? 16 years in jail, right? So whether you agree with the trade or not, I just think that, you know, it is something that you look at and say, hey, this, is, this does make this country pretty badass that, you know, she can go kneel and protest at a game. We can all be pissed off about it. But the fact that you can do that is fairly exceptional in the grand scheme of things. Well, I guess my, <clears throat> my question to you would be, though, with you doing everything that you've done over these, you know, last 20 years, does it ever bother you, though, when, I, I, of course, we can say they can kneel, they can protest, they can do all that. But does it ever make you mad or rub you the wrong way when people do that? Because, of course, like we said, they can do that. But it's really a question of should they do that? Because just because you can do something doesn't mean that you actually should do it. 
Honestly, no. I appreciate living in a country where you can do that. People can get mad or not. But I always look at the fact that, you know, I've been in the military for 24 years, but I'm protecting our way of life to where people can make those decisions and do what they want. And I'm a true believer in having different opinions, right? This country was founded on a difference of opinion. If you look back at the Federalist versus the Anti-Federalist and how we actually got the our um, Bill of Rights, right? That was over disagreement, right? The Massachusetts Compromise. It's because two people couldn't agree. And that's why we have what we have right now, right? Um, so there always has to be that balance. Uh, and I think that that is what makes America exceptional is that we do have different opinions and we don't always have to agree. I think we're moving away from being able to have discussions with each other with it, right? Um, it becomes more hatred and, and, and vitriol and whatnot versus, you know, I could sit across from you and, and disagree with you, but I'll still respect your opinion today. Unless it's just really, really dumb. Like there's obviously you're talking to people like, all right, man, like you're completely ridiculous and I'm just going to walk away. But in America, you can do that. And they can stand on the street corner and yell as much stupid stuff as they want. Right. And the government can't do anything about it. Yeah. You know, and, and the way I look at it is a little different. I look at it from kind of a law enforcement perspective. And when you have, because I agree with you. I think we're getting away from the situation to where we can peaceably talk about stuff and we're more getting into the squeaky wheel gets the oil. The louder you scream, the more you scream about it, the more you get looked at and talked to. And that's the way I, I feel like a lot of people handle the problems today is just be as loud as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And that will get someone to pay attention to them instead of rationally discussing it, talking it out. Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. That's why people do a lot of the dumb stuff they do, because that brings attention to whatever their cause is, right? Right. Well, you Whether know... Shooting down substations or whatever <laughs> else they're doing. <laughs> so when the power goes out, uh, how's the weather down there? Because in Texas, it has been so hot, it's unreal. It's been like 77 to almost 80. How's the weather down where you're at with the power being out? Oddly enough, it, it went out right when it was getting pretty cold. So that was pretty interesting um, here. Keep keep a lot of stuff for backups. And I wouldn't say that I'm a prepper, right? But keep a spare generator and a primary generator and a box full of your cords and, and everything you need, firewood, um, oil lamps, you know, backup stoves, all that good stuff. So always ready here because in Southern Pines, it's, it's all three. So at least two or three times a year, you're going to be without power for probably a week or two. So. You just gotta, you just gotta be ready for that. Keeping some water, keeping food. Um, so, but yeah, it got cold. It was, it was, it was chilly. But three oil heaters and a fireplace, and then you know, dooring off the rooms you're not using, it works pretty well. Let me ask you another question about everything that's going on uh, around there, the weather, all that kind of stuff. We're just talking about some basic stuff right now, but I, I want to get into some more in-depth things. Uh, with you and with everything that we talked about last week, I had uh, Scott Mann on. The week before that, I had your friend Jeff on. And, and we talked a lot about how things are being handled. Uh, and I want to talk real quickly about uh, mental health and how people are approaching the physical, the mental, and everything like that. You are coming very close to the end of your career, like we've talked about mm -hmm. before, where you're retiring. Now, when you are headed to go out the door, do you think that you're ready for everything that's getting ready to come at you? Do you think you've been prepped enough and are prepping enough to get out uh, with everything that's going to happen on the other side of it? Because 
we've said it before on the show and you and I have even talked about it. People get out and they think, Oh, I'm just going to be retired and it's going to be this way and that. And it's never that way. So do you think that you've prepped mm-hmm. enough and gotten ready to get out? Probably not. I've told you, I don't know. Maybe I didn't tell you this, but I only have three real big fears in life, right? Heights, which is weird because I was on a special forces mountain team for years and I did a lot of lying to God on the side of a mountain where I get on <laughs> paths I shouldn't have been on or on a route that was way above my skill level. I'm like, God, if you just let me survive this, I'll stop masturbating. And then, of course, that was a lie. Um, anyway, for the heights, for the spider webs at face level, and getting out of the army. So, yeah. But you know, I still got a little while before I get out. I'm gonna, I'll probably be fully out in just under two years. Right? So I'm moving over to another position to do my last thing before I get out. Some of my side hobbies are are dealing with irregular warfare and. Um, working some of that policy initiatives there and i want to go up and work as a regular warfare proponent for the army because it's new and kind of drive that train so it's going to be my last year to get out but back to your question no i don't think any of us are ready for that transition i think we've discussed it before where law enforcement's way behind the power curve in comparison to the army and how we've come along and the way we view mental health and i don't think you know, by no means are, are we all there. Our mental health system still sucks in the military, but it's, the way we view it, I believe, is a lot better to where you're not you're not really looked down upon for coming out. Now, it's not always true, uh, but it's better than it was. You know, people wouldn't talk about it before. Now it's, hey, I'm going through some problems or how do I go and get help for this? And then on that, when you're going to transition outside the military, you're going to lose all that access too. So that's, you know, I think there needs to be a plan for that in place for all of us when we get out. How do we deal with that? Right. So a lot of people have complained when they've talked about the show, when they say they got out and, and they go through the transition there, there's of course new things like skill bridge and stuff like that, that are helping people uh, to get out of the military. But a lot of them say when they're prepping them to get out, they're not giving them all the information. They're showing them how to set up like a LinkedIn account and they're, they're doing all these other things that people know how to do. What are some of the things that you think that we should focus in on when we're transitioning either out of law enforcement, out of the military, uh, or just transitioning into that second phase of our life, whether or not we're a first responder or military, just trans transitioning in retirement. Man, I think one of the biggest things you can do is learn how to speak civilian, right? Um, I started using LinkedIn learning and, and just doing a lot of like business acumen and, learning how to speak like a normal human being because you don't realize until you start getting out to these other communities that aren't military or Leo and talking to normal people and you have no idea what they're saying and they have no idea what you're saying because you're talking in acronyms and, and using words that they've never heard before. And then they're using words that, that you've either heard or you don't know, you know, you've never heard exactly what they're talking about in that context. So, I mean, you know, I think six months into doing those courses, I was feeling like, okay, I can go into, this civilian company, you know, for the consulting thing I have on the side and actually understand everything that they're saying. That was surprising, but just doing that right off the bat, learning what is it that, you know, these businesses on the outside, what's their vernacular? Like, you know, so you can just understand what's going on. That makes sense. No, it makes, it makes complete sense because a lot of what you hear is, is the purpose driven life kind of afterwards. And even if you're transforming over into that business world, I think a lot of people, in my opinion, don't focus on the other things that are important. I think everyone focuses on purpose and and having a mission, but also 
giving yourself time to relax, giving yourself time to enjoy the things that you like doing. Now, I don't know about in your world, in my world, guys don't have a lot of hobbies. They don't have a lot of, you know, stuff that they're doing. It's getting better. But I feel that's a big thing when people get out is they don't know what to do with their time because there's so much time. Uh, when my dad retired, he told me it took him like a year and a half before he figured out what he wanted to do, that he was really bored for that first year and a half. And then, of course, he started playing golf. He had regular lunch dates or dinner dates or anything like that. Do you feel that that's an important aspect that I think a lot of people don't think about also is all the time that you're going to have on your hands? Well, yeah, I think people in their heads, they, they go out or they're going to get out and they think like, well, I'm going to be so happy because now I don't have to do all this stuff, right? But the reality is most of us that come into these jobs and do it for as long as we do, that we want to be challenged. So once we find ourselves in a space where we, we're not challenged and we don't have anything going on, that becomes problematic because that's that's a spiritual pillar in life. You won't, None of us have sat on the couch for a week and got up and thought, damn, I feel really accomplished. I'm glad I watched all that TV. It doesn't happen. You have to do something that's slightly difficult or challenging or takes you out of your comfort zone to feel fulfilled, right? So something on the outside has to take that spot. You got to find what, and you know, until the day you die, you got to find something that makes you feel accomplished because that's, that's what brings you that, you know, happiness in life, really. Maybe there's some people out there that just, they can just be a lazy piece of shit and feel really good about themselves. I can't do that. And I'm not saying that that's totally wrong in retirement, but I think most people in our community just can't do that, even though if they think they can. Yeah, and I, I think that's a big thing that you talk about. When you, when you get lazy and you, I think that's where you lose focus. That's where you lose purpose is when you get lazy and you don't want to do anything at all. Because I think it's a very slippery slope. Uh, if you've ever looked at like if you take a day off on the weekend or whatever and you just lay around, it's hard to get going the next day. And I think that just builds up on people. Uh, another big thing for you, uh, whenever you do, you were talking about the irregular warfare. Can you talk about that a little bit of what you're going to do before? Because I also want to kind of tie that into your podcast and everything that you're doing with the irregular warfare and talking to those kind of guys on your show. Yeah. So the irregular warfare Institute is a, it's a joint collaboration between West Point and Princeton um, I'm just friends with some of those guys. So I've been on their podcast, uh, but we've, you know, we've, we've done some work with them and being tied more into that because they're really driving towards influencing policy. And then for the army side of the house, irregular warfare is this term that's not really well defined yet. It's not in United States code, you know, because everything we do is dictated by the law of what we can and can't do. Uh, there's not a whole lot of authorities there, but I think that that's going to be the future, at least in special operations of where, we find ourselves employment across the globe and, and you know, post GWAT, you know, global war on terror, it's not a counter-terrorist fight right now. So how do you stay employed and do that legally to where you have the monies and you have the ability to do that and actual, you're making a difference, something that affects, you know, the security of our nation globally. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are, that are straight up isolationist. And, and again, like we talked about, you can, we can have all these opinions all day long. Let's have discussions about them, but it's a world game. And if we don't play it, like look how China's, outmaneuvering us right now right in every aspect like you have to play the game if you want to win it um or if you just want to maintain the status quo but resources don't just exist in the united states we can't just say hey we're just going to worry about our country over here in the middle of these two oceans and we're going to be fine we're going to end up like mexico right you still have to play the game somehow i'm not saying we've been playing it completely right but we have to go out there and influence 
everything that's going on because a lot of our critical resources come from Africa. You know, they come from Asia. They come from places that aren't over here in safe land between two oceans. So with the irregular warfare, the the question that comes to my mind is, is do you think with this last 20-odd years of, of war, do you think that the face of warfare has changed and and will be changed yes. forever? Oh, absolutely. It's more complex now, right? Now you've got the whole cyberspace. You've got so many different playing fields. And, and we kind of got... I would say distracted with the global war on terror. There's still a world game going on. Like everybody tries to bring back these these words like, oh, we're in comp- this competition space. We've always been in competition space since since people had the ability to sail around and, and influence the globe. It's always been a competition space. So we should need to get back to that. How do you use every aspect of your nation to, to influence that, right? And when you say irregular warfare, it's not just blowing things up or, or violence. It's how do you influence something with economic means or, you know, as far as information through whatever you can use, you know, we've got an acronym that we use called dime. It might be a lot of dated. Um, there's some better acronyms out there for, for how we influence, but the Chinese model is actually pretty bad. It's trying a long time ago. They, they did studies on how we did desert storm and they said, Hey, we'll never be able to beat the United States militarily. So how do we beat them? Right. And, um, the way they've been doing, it's been pretty genius with, with how they've been able to influence a lot of countries in South America, all across Africa, of course, you know, our Asian countries and, and now how they're, they're, in my opinion, they're playing Russia. Um, they're going to come out on top there. With those countries that you're mentioning, Russia, China, uh, Iran is one of them. Uh, we're, we're in a different world, uh, as you said, but I, I want to talk about the cyber warfare for a minute because I think that's going to be our next big thing is cyber warfare. Um, you released a video out uh, where you talked about the psyops and stuff. Uh, I want to talk about that in the cyber warfare world because I think it's used a lot. That's how they get the propaganda messages out. We know when the Jordanian pilot was killed, that's how they got their propaganda videos out. But that's going to be a big thing. And I don't think a lot of people look at cyber warfare in that sense that those propaganda videos and stuff are what is pushing conflict along in a lot of countries. Like we talked about before, the squeaky wheel Mm -hmm. gets the oil. And the more they talk about it, and the more they make those videos and use the internet and and cyber warfare to their advantage, the more that threat grows. Yeah, I mean, our adversaries have been using the cyberspace for a long time. If you look at most of your fringe websites from the left or the right, is run by some kind of state arm somewhere else, right? And they're manipulating everybody to to have this division or to think how they want you to think or have whatever, whatever it is they're trying to put out there. But most of those fringe sites are run by, and that's left or right, right? So if, you, if you're getting all of your information from something that looks biased all the time, man, you're poisoning your brain. And it's probably something from Russia or China or somebody trying to manipulate the United States, right? But they've been, they've been playing that game far better than we have. And they probably will continue to, to, to do it because they don't have rules, right? There's a book called War Without Rules um, that I read recently. And when I started, I was like, eh, it seems like kind of like some kind of bias bullshit, but I won't do it. It's actually a really good book. Uh, it just talks about the Chinese model and how they've been playing that game and how, because we have rules that we impose on ourselves, we'll never be able to play it on that level as far as influencing on the cyberspace. So that is a, uh, a contentious kind of topic. Whenever you say we, we have rules for ourselves and 
some people are of the opinion that as long as we continue to have rules and our enemy doesn't have rules, we will continue to keep trying to catch up to them. Do you agree with that statement? Um, yeah. I mean, I think we do. We, we constrain ourselves a lot of times probably too heavily, right? But we do it through rules because that's what we're about. We're this rules-based country and we want to promote a rules-based world order to where you don't have crazy genocides and stuff happening. It's not acceptable, right? It's like, it's, it's the culture. Like if you define culture, it's the worst behavior that you allow that's acceptable in whatever group you're in. Right. And then, cause then everybody starts to do it. It's, it's the same thing in, in the world. You're trying to create this culture where certain things are unacceptable. So if we go away from that, we just go, you know, ham on whatever we want to, then, you know, how do we come back from that is the question. I don't know. Once we cross that threshold, uh, it, it's very hard to come back from that. But on the flip side, every time I'm deployed and I'm trying to do stuff, I'm always pissed off at the rules. I'm like, why am I hands tied? This is so stupid, right? So, you know, I, I try to balance it out in my head here, but when I'm deployed, I'm always pissed off that I can't do what I should be doing because, you know, I'm shackled. Well, can we talk about that a little bit and, and what you mean by the rules and, and what you get pissed off? It doesn't have to be any operational security stuff or, or maneuvers or anything like that. But can you give an example of stuff where you look at it when you're over there and you're like, what in the fuck are we doing here? Um, yeah, it's never like a, what the fuck we're doing here. I'm like, OK, I understand what I'm doing here. I understand what I'm being asked to do. But then the onus is always on you in the lowest level. It's really more complicated than, than people probably imagine. They probably just think, oh, you're. Special forces, you get told to go here. You've got unlimited resources. That's not the way it works. You have to dig through the law, and you have to dig through what's called your executive orders. Excuse me. And the law, if it says it, then that's not. You can't do that. And an executive order, if it's not specifically in there, you can't target this person. Then you can't do it. And then you've got your fiscal authorities. I say, hey, this is how you're going to fund this partner force, this entity that you're going to run. But here's what you can specifically spend money on, and here's what they can do with it. Right. So then you're trying to go through all of that. And then you've got permissions like, okay, well, you're legally allowed to do this. You're allowed to do it in this X world. But I'm not going to give you the permission to do it. So you got to balance all that out, keep yourself out of trouble because actually nobody's going to care if you break the rules until something goes wrong. Right. And then, then the shit's going to hit the fan and everybody gets fired or whatever. Um, but it's really complex. So knowing the rules for us is important, which, which is everything. And usually what they're asking you to do doesn't align with those rules. So then you got to figure out, how to accomplish the mission using the rule sets that you have. And that's where we're constrained a lot of times. You're like, okay, well, this allows me to do this, but I don't have the money to do this, which I need to do X. So then I got to go talk to this person to get this equipment from somebody else to do this thing that I'm allowed to do, but then I might get told no, even though I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how convoluted it is. It gets really crazy. And you're always trying to keep yourself in that legal zone. So when shit does hit the fan and an investigation comes down on, on something that went wrong with, you know, Tongo Tongo in Africa was a great example where if you're at the lower level, shit rolls downhill. Like they're going to pin it on you more than likely. So you always got to make sure that you know the rules and you're operating within them and still trying to accomplish the mission. And when you have a thing like Tongo Tongo or, I mean, there's been numerous ones that have come up uh, in, in the past couple of years. With that on the lowest level, how do we fix that problem? Because that that is a problem because it's, it shouldn't always roll downhill. And it happens in law enforcement, too. The onus is on each one of us. Um, they always talk about when a bullet leaves a gun, you you claim every single bullet that leaves that gun. You need to know where it's going. If it goes anywhere that it doesn't, it's on you. Um, 
can we talk a little bit about that, about the onus and, and it coming down to you? But in some instances, it, it should be at a different level. I think that it's so quickly pushed off that we don't even get a look at the complete picture. Yeah, I'll give a good example. That really falls in that higher level leader taking that responsibility, right? I think a good example was in Afghanistan in Kunduz where uh, they we had shut a school with doctors without borders on it, right? It was a big deal. But when that investigation came down, that higher level commander, the guy I highly respect to this day, he was like, no. He's like, that wasn't the company commander's fault. It wasn't the team's fault. I made that call. The buck stops here, right? And that's where, you know, it pretty much ended up. But it requires people at every level to be that person to stand up. If you're that officer, like, no, nah, it was these dudes, and it's always going to continue to roll down. You got you to gotta stand in the way of the shit so it doesn't continue to go downhill. You know, if you just get out of the way, it's always going to go downhill. There's, there's almost no way to fix that, but having those personalities that are going to stand up and, and take the blame and the onus when it's due. You know, when the responsibility is on you, take the responsibility. Well, with that, uh, that kind of personality, I think, is a trait that is on its way out the door, um, especially with when you look at recruiting models for not only the military, but law enforcement, everyone is missing their recruiting, which in the end is going to mean that the standards are going to get lowered to bring more people in. Then you get, like we've talked about before in that ood loop of you got bad after bad, after bad, after bad. I, I think that some people are scared to come in because the buck doesn't stop, but then also we're getting a lower level coming in. And by the time they reach that higher position, they don't know any difference either. So where do we break that cycle? I, mean, I think that comes down to the mentorship and investing in people, right? I think it's it's more important now than probably ever that you get those younger people in, that you really spend time mentoring them and investing in those people to, to ensure that they are raised appropriately and they they fall into that culture that you've created of taking ownership of things, right? You should you should have these no-fail environments. You should be able to screw things up as long as you learn from it and you don't repeat the same mistake over and over again and it should be okay for a high level commander like hey you know i did screw that up or maybe i didn't screw that up but the responsibility lies here so that's it leave these dudes alone but all right i think Let's, the only way to fix that is to, is to invest that's it yeah but, uh, it, yeah and it's a very simple answer but i don't think that it is simply put into practice it's a very simple answer no. invest in your people no pe people don't do it they say it but it takes time and it takes a lot of energy to do that. Right. And time is finite. It's the one thing you never get back in life. It's that one investment that, you know, you're not going to invest that thing and get a bunch of time back like money or anything. You, you lose that time. So you can invest it wisely, but the best investment you can make in your time is in ensuring that next person coming up is raised properly in whatever culture you're in, whatever job you're in and make sure that they know what they got to know. And they operate in that, that, whatever that rules-based culture that you want. So when they're in that position, they're like, hey, I know the right answer here is to stop this pile of shit coming on this hill and not get out of the way. Well, let's talk about you investing in some people because with your podcast, and, and I think that you said that it is the number one rated special operations podcast. Uh, Sometimes. So, so, SOCOM beat us <laughs> last week, right? We, we've been neck and neck. But between us and the SOCOM podcast, as far as military government podcasts, we're up. You know, from we've been going from like the, the eight to like 20 
um, in government podcasts. And then the next closest military podcast is number 55. And then the rest are like in the nineties or above. So let's talk about you investing in people because you are taking a different approach with this podcast. You're talking about a lot of stuff. I think that people aren't talking about on their military podcasts. Uh, you are talking about the person themselves. You are talking about what they did, what they're doing, and how they're bettering themselves. So let's talk a little bit about that because it's pretty interesting to listen to these guys that you bring in. Yeah, it's, we're just trying to make it real. Most military podcasts or military messaging or you go off on the Armed Forces Network, it's all a bunch of, it's all a bunch of BS, right? It's just a bunch of narratives, um, people towing the party line. You know, we're trying to stay away from that. It's just, it's just real. Um we do put a lot of work into our concepts. Like we have a plan going in these things. It's not just, Hey, we're just going live with this, but it's a real discussion. We don't do a ton of editing. If we're doing editing, we're just making ourselves sound smarter, like taking out the ums and, and making ourselves sound awesome. Maybe in terms of the bass in my voice, I sound cool. But as far as the content, we're not, <laughs> we're not trying to fake the funk. It's just what it is. It's real. It's people. Um, you can disagree with their opinions. It's fine. Just come up. Let's have a discussion about it. And then trying to bring up topics that, we know commanders listen to the podcast. The SOCOM commander listens to it. The first special forces command commander listens to it. The, the sergeant major of the army listens to it. Tradoc listens to it. So we try to put stuff in there too that sparks conversation. The one we just released last week talks about um, talks about cyber, right? It's like, hey, if we're going to say cyber, space, and, and special operations is the future, well, let's define that because people keep saying those words, but they don't use precise words. So nobody really knows what they're talking about. And then when you ask that guy, like, well, what are you talking about? They, they give you this runaround. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to say it, define it and then we ha- we put that in there just so it sparks that conversation up top and no shit the past couple of days i've had people text me and call me like hey let's let's talk about this and define it cool let's define it for the force right when you bring these guys in though because you uh being at your rank having officers in there you've had general level uh officers you've had a, a ton of different people in there do you ever worry you yourself i'm asking do you ever worry that you might step on your dick talking to some of these guys or say the wrong thing. Are you worried about that? Or do you just want to keep it, you know, as professional as you can? No, I mean, we give, we give the impression that's oh, like, this is Sergeant Major in him. But the reality is I'm a weird doctrinal rules guy. Like if you walk in my office or even if you walk into a podcast, I'll have a joint ethics regulation. I have it all tabbed out. I, I know what I can and can't do. I've been doing this for long enough to where, I understand the rules. So we're going to take it right to the edge and we're not going to go past that, but um, they all know that coming on too. And it's the new general for SWIC. He was pretty concerned at first. And then we briefed him. We told him our plan. He's like, hey, here's our strategic vision out for the next year. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. I'm asking you to underwrite this risk to where we're not going through the public affairs office. You know, I'm the last one. To hit. I'm the one that publishes every podcast. So if I get mad and just decide to get on the air and be like, oh, hey, you know, F special operations. I mean, it's a risk he's willing to take. Um, between him and all the other generals from USASOC all the way to First Special Forces Command, they, they've all accepted that risk. They're letting us run with it. And I think it's been pretty successful because our numbers just keep shooting through the roof. So, and I've got people in industry. Um, I, I don't want to say like probably half of our listeners are, are not in the military right now. I think that that's an important thing to point out there, though. Uh, there are a lot of people. Here's where the, 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 the kind of break happens or the disconnect happens. You have all these people on the outside that are looking in, want to hear these podcasts, want to hear what these people are saying, all that kind of stuff. But then like we talked about in the very beginning, these guys get out and they get lost. 
I would like to see something of these people watching these, seeing these, and understanding, hey, these guys are getting ready to get out. Let's help bring them into the world because I think that would be the softest landing they could do is with civilians and people not in the military accepting accepting them into this second part of their life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do have a lot of people out there that are doing that, but again, it's, I mean, we don't message it, you know, probably as well as we should. And those guys are busy on the outside, so they're not messaging it. But um, all the people that I know on the outside that are they're successful, the CEOs are all with successful law enforcement of the military to, to step into a lot of these roles, right? It's just how do you know where to go and how do you know where to look? Because it's not like they, they have the ability to come and recruit either. They don't have the bandwidth for that. So, yeah, I don't know how we do that. All right. I want to do a little fact checking with you. Uh, I listened to your uh, podcast with the S Fabs. Uh, I think you called it S Fabulous. Uh, you had a guy on there, and I don't know who it was, but they were talking about Vanilla Ice, and they asked what mm-hmm. his real name was. But then they said he was a Miami boy, and that is no further from the tr- it's It's so far from the truth. He is actually Dallas, Texas, moved to Miami after the whole rap thing happened and took on that persona. So I think you need to take some points away because I know you guys were so, collecting so you think points. he's faking it. So we, Yeah, but does Texas really want to claim... Was it what was his name? His name wasn't Rip Van Winkle. It was something. It was Rob Van Winkle. Rob Van Winkle. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I don't mean, think I'm it was Texas. Rip Van do we, Winkle. Do we want to claim this guy? I mean, I like Vanilla Ice. I think that you know he's a pioneer. Oh, I I definitely think so. And if you say you didn't listen to him growing up, you're a fucking liar because right, yeah, yeah. everybody listened well, to him. Depending on what, like we're showing our age right now. Depending on what age bracket you're in, right? I don't even think that matters. Tell me a wedding or a party that you have been to that they didn't play Vanilla Ice at. Yeah, at least Ice Ice Baby, at least once, right? Exactly. Somewhere. Yeah, so yeah. I see you. Uh, we, we've talked about the podcast, but let's also talk about what that podcast has brought you. Hatchet Brewing uh, has joined forces with you guys and made their new brand of beer. Can we show the can on there and tell all about it? Well, so here's why though. So I spent all my time in the same special forces company, like 16 years worth of time. There was a captain in one of the teams in that company and a guy named Greg Walker. He got out West Point grad and he stayed local. He said he's going to start hatchet brewing company. So he is actually alumni from the company. I grew up in, in special forces and we came up with a podcast. I was talking to him. He's like, Hey man, I'm going to, I want to do a Pineland underground beer because Pineland underground it's the name of the podcast, but it just happens to be part of the Q course, right? Pineland's a big thing around here. I was like, hell yeah, go for it. So he came up and he made this beer. And um, we did the opening night and a dollar from every beer went to to charity, right? It went to Towns Reach Foundation, um, which is pretty badass. And then he went through that whole stock. He's, he said he's going to make it a flagship beer. I just want to say that I'm not making the beer. People keep look, hitting me up like, hey, how can I order some of your beer? It's not my beer. <laughs> Don't. The fact that this beer is being made, but it's badass. That it's a it's a vet. He's a he's an ex Green Beret. He's got a brewing company here. And he's making a badass beer. He did ask me what kind of beer I'd want it to be. I told him I wanted it to be a hazy IPA. That's what he made it because I'm not a big fan of like really strong normal IPAs, but a hazy has more of a citrusy taste to it. Um, that's pretty strong. So that's what he did, and he made a pretty good brew. So wow, look at you uh, doing the notes and the flavors coming off your beer. I think you're missing a huge opportunity, Chuck. Uh, if people are asking you how to get the beer, you should definitely set up Venmo or PayPal and, you know, have them send the money for the beer 
And then like it goes back to the rules that joint ethics regulation. And then the, <laughs> the, the army substance abuse program, the army cannot condone or promote alcoholic beverages like that. All right. So with that, so with- I got to keep, I got to keep like, we go back, like, where do you ride that line? Like, that's where I got to ride that line. Right. Like how am I work? Like, no, nope, I know what the rules are. I know that Sergeant Major Ritter isn't condoning beer. I just enjoy this lovely beer that is made a hatchet brewing company here in, <laughs> in Southern Pines, North Carolina. So here's the thing, though. You see that it's actually it doesn't matter that the guy was special forces that runs the brewing company. You see that you're making an impact out there. You talked about Talon's Reach. You talked about the beer. You're obviously out there making a difference to people. Let's talk about Talon's Reach real quick and talk about uh, everything that they're doing for the special forces community. Again, so this is just Chuck Ritter talking about because I also can't promote non-governmental organizations according to joint ethics regulation. Got it. Of course. So, you know, you, you want the, me to just put the disclaimer in there. Listen, you, anyway. I will for the next time you and I do this, I'll have a buzzer so people know he's not condoning this. Um, but I'm condoning it, but just as Chuck Ritter, right? That's how I get away with it. Anyway, okay. I mean a Talents Reach Foundation started by a guy named Nick Jones. Uh, he was a Marine that got wounded in Iraq. And uh, he didn't feel like the Marine Corps did him right. So He's like, man, I'm going to start this nonprofit organization because he got severely wounded. He's still going through surgeries and he was going through a lot of mental problems. So uh, we ran our first event last year. Now we've run um, two more events. They've been successful. We'll take six or seven operators from all the different surfaces and we'll put them on first class flight out to Montana for now. And they'll go out there for a week with with professionals for um, going through everything that you can do for yourself psychologically that has nothing to do with medicine. Right. So, um, it's a cool organization. It's been successful. It's been, it's been pretty awesome. With that organization with, I want to talk about, you talked about that guy that started it, uh, how many injuries he had, but let's talk about your injuries because I want people to understand you're, you're not just talking about this. You actually live this life. Let's talk about your injuries and then it's going to move us into the next part that you and I have set up. Um, but let's talk about your injuries, your surgeries, and how your body has done after all these years in the military. Yeah, so last year I had my 30th surgery due to combat injuries, so it's just part of the job. Uh, but you're going to show the one video where I get shot up in the in the leg and the back and took a little zing to the buttocks. But that was, that was the second time I was critically wounded. And in between that time and the first time I was critically wounded, I also had a little mental break for about a year, which I had to go seek some psychiatric help. And on top of that, I think my speech gets weird sometimes, even in the podcast. It's one of the reasons why I do the podcast, because I have a lot of cognitive damage. So I have to do cognitive therapy all the time to, to just think and speak properly. And it helps me with that. Excuse me. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to talk about Tagab Valley where I got shot. But then I got shot again in the hand, that next deployment. And then the reality, it's just it's an occupational hazard. It's weird that we join this job and it just kind of comes with the territory. But there are intelligent ways to recover physically and then also mentally and then getting ahead of the power curve, like, you know, specifically what DTD is really about is is making sure that we're mentally healthy before something happens too, right? Because it's going to help you recover on the backside. And we're all going to find ourselves in a pit. Like everybody's going to find themselves in the pit of despair mentally at some point in time in their life, no matter what they're doing, right? It doesn't matter if you're a cashier at Walmart for your entire life you're going to find yourself there at some point in time how do you get yourself out and you know going back to talent reach that's the tools we're trying to get people like how do you do that without going towards medicine without going towards 
you know, taking Valium or whatever you're going to take. Let's talk a little bit about uh, alternative therapies real quick. Uh, they have really come on. You and I have talked about the stellate ganglion. There's hyperbaric uh, treatments. There's all these new treatments that are coming out. And they're trying to get them over into the military where the VA is using them. But it's mostly on the outside world. How long do you think it is that we're away from not only in the military but in law enforcement and bringing these kind of, I guess you would call them fringe uh healing therapies into the realm of where everybody's using them because right now they're kind of expensive they're a little on the fringe like i said how long are we out you think from bringing them into full use well at least in special operations like it's not fringe anymore it's right there at the unit you know you've got your your psychiatrist and everybody there and your physical therapist who were able to do some of that stuff and then we've got access to the ganglion blocks and everything very easily we do it at Womack now or we'll fly people up they want to get the doubles and then we've got the means to get guys into inpatient care maybe not paid for by the unit but plenty of nonprofit organizations that'll pay for a guy if we say this guy right here needs to go we'll get him out there and he'll get in some inpatient treatment um for law enforcement i don't know you're going to answer that one i think for the military we're getting pretty close to where those fringe you know treatments aren't they're just normal and they're paid for and we've got the means to do it as far as you guys i don't know i'm going to assume that you're probably not there i i don't i don't i think we're a long ways away from it i think that that actual uh treatment facilities rehab and things like that uh just to treat normal human things like you said that everyone goes through i think that we're just now starting to address those so when you look at these other things that are still at ganglion blocks and and the alternative therapies and i think we're a long ways away from that which is bothersome because if you talk to a lot of the people that have had these alternative therapies I haven't heard one person say bad. I haven't heard anyone say that it completely corrected the problem, but I haven't heard anyone say bad. Have you came across that yeah. in your, okay. So can we talk about that? I've got a lot of people that I know that they're very against the, the, the ganglion blocks. They've done them. Maybe they tried them once or twice and they've got just very bad things to say about it, but it's about 50, 50 and there's guys that love it. So it's, it's, you know, the guys that hate it will advocate against it. And the guys that love it will advocate for it. And there's some guys that go through some of the other things that we teach and like, yeah, that's just going to make me that stupid. And that's fine because one thing's not going to work for everybody. Right. And really the ganglion block too, if, if you do it and it works, but then you put yourself right back in the environment that caused you to be stuck in that, that sympathetic nervous system anyway. Um, it's going to, it's just like, if you stop drinking, you keep going to the bar every night, like you're probably going to start drinking again. Right. So. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's take a look at this video. Uh, you're going to walk us through it and talk. It's about six and a half minutes. Um, we're, we'll skip through certain parts of it, but we're going to talk about the decisions that you made there. I think this is the first time that people seeing this will actually get to see some actual uh, combat footage that you can't get closer than what it is. So let's go ahead. If you want to set it up for us, though, uh, that would be nice. Yeah, so this is Tagab Valley, Afghanistan, 2013. We'd gone into this village uh, where we were told there was three to 800 enemy. We kind of shrugged it off because a lot of times in Afghanistan, those numbers are inflated. And we're like, man, there's, there's no way. And this has been, I forgot how many combat trips this was, but I'd already been to Afghanistan multiple times and I'd, I'd fought in Iraq at this point in time. And even up to this point for this mission, that we'd already been on other missions with these commandos. So we go into this valley. Uh, we clear all night, 
sun comes up and we are in a massive gunfight. They're throwing grenades over the walls. They're right on top of us. They'd outmaneuvered us. Um, they'd gotten on top of us, and, and uh, they were definitely playing the game better than we were. And we were pushing these them back off of our our walls with these little kill teams. And this was probably the third or fourth time I went out with my supporting effort. And I thought that we were going to ambush this enemy that we were watching on sensors. We hit these guys with hellfires. Uh, but these guys knew the terrain so well. They knew that the only way we could get back around to um, where their main maneuver force was was through a certain road, and they were already waiting for us with multiple machine guns and a close ambush setup. So uh, I thought that we were going to go down this trail and we are going to set up an ambush and, and get behind these guys, but the reality was it was reversed. They were waiting for us, and they opened up and they killed an Afghan, which you'll, you can't see him, but you hear it, and then a lot of the Afghans run away, and then... Our aircraft can't fire because their guns are broken. I have no other aircraft on station because they're refueling. So it was just, it was a clusterfuck. It was, it was a good time. Anyway, we'll get to the video. All right, let's go ahead and start it up. So this guy up here right in the front, that's a CRD guy, which means he's a, he's a chemical guy. So he's not a, a Green Beret. The, there's only two Green Berets of this whole element. It's me and my medic. I'm in the front. The helmet cam is my medic's helmet cam. And then there's an interpreter. He kind of looks like an American. He's not. Uh, his name is Frank, but I can't hear. Is there sound plan? Yeah, that's what I'm. I'm trying to. Uh, like I said, we're new to this, so I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, I don't. I don't hear any sound playing. But we let's uh, let's try and keep it going. You know what? I can bring it up. Let's do it like this. Let's take this out of here, and then I'll remove us out of here. We can still talk. But let's bring this up, and we'll just watch it on the main screen, and that should give us. There we go. Okay. Can you hear the sound now? So, yeah. So at this point, yeah, I can hear the sound. So at this point, we had been in a rolling firefight all morning. We've been out there since about ten thirty the night before. And these are Afghan commandos, and there's a couple Afghan special forces with us. There's a difference between commandos and special forces. I don't have time to explain, but there's a special forces medic and another special forces guy with us, and then the rest of the commanders. Hold fast, and I'm up, I'm up in the corner. You can't see me. This is my medic's helmet cam. This guy was a beast. He, uh, when I got shot, he actually had to take over from my position. So then he was doing medicine, and he was a combat leader. When I talk about combat leader, I'm talking like he's maneuvering and having to control the entire element on the ground. Roger. Did you copy? And that's Frank so, right there in the front. Hey, how long do we have? So I think a lot of people are going to ask in this. Uh, they see everyone standing there. Can you kind of explain that position, what you're doing, why you're doing it that way? Well, that's the Afghan herd and catch, right? Like, you can get real pissed off about the tactical. Hey, you get to a, a point to where you're, like, just happy they're plugging holes or they're looking down a, an alleyway. It's not – can't ever expect them to be as proficient as, as, as you want them to be. You're just always gonna be mad, so you got to figure out how to how to work that. So, you know, for me, I'm looking at these guys. I'm like, damn, these guys are way too close. Um, but that's just what you got to do, right? I mean, so hey, what happened there is the road. we're going around the corner. There's two Afghans up there. One of them got shot. Prepare to copy. He's about, I'm up in the corner right there, looking around the corner, and uh, I can see him. Six two two nine six. A lot of the Afghans ran on the alleyway. You don't five, see them five, anymore because they five. took off. We have one commando wounded. Hey, let's go. We're going back. Go get him. 
Grid is six two two nine four five 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 one three. So you see, go around the corner there, and they're not happy to see us. Hey, we are taking accurate fire. Can you explain accurate fire and fire? Generally in Afghanistan, it's a lot of inaccurate fire. It's just all over the place. It's it's from range, you know, two, three hundred meters or more. This was really close, from twenty-five meters. It was right on the position. So these guys are pretty well trained. They know what they're doing. That's not common in Afghanistan with a lot of these firefights. You know, unless you're running it into some of the guys that really know what they're doing, or, or the Chechens, or some of the Akani network. Um, most of these guys are pretty brave fighters, and you can you can go ahead and go about two minutes in. Because there's not a whole lot going on here except for us trying to figure out how to get the Afghans in there. I do want to so point out something. Uh, you can hear overhead. You can hear all the airframes that are overhead. You can hear helicopters, all that kind of stuff. So as it just pointed out, talk about you trying to call in uh, some gun support from the air for you. Yeah, so we had two Apaches overhead. And then the other aircraft you, you hear, there was two... I forgot. I don't know if I remember their F-16s. There was two F-16s that were in orbit, but they were out of fuel, so they were leaving. And then we had A-10s on station, but they were refueling, so they were out of the game for about 20 minutes. And then you hear the A-10s come in after I get shot, but we can go over there in a minute. But it's kind of deceiving because you hear these fast moves overhead, but we didn't really have anything on the Raws that, that could come in and, and ID and, and drop anything. And to be honest with you, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to drop any bombs and the, the helicopters that couldn't shoot because their guns are broken wasn't comfortable with, with dropping any hellfires or rockets because your risk estimated difference for an AGM 134, your hellfires is 110 meters. And that was a little bit too close for that. So um, we were really stuck without any air support once we found that the guns just wasn't, they weren't going to work. So a lot, you're skipping up here because it's just us being pissed off that we're not getting any fire. And when you push play over here, my medic going, Hey, Alpha, where's that fire? And I'm like, what the fuck? You can't hear my comms, but what is going on? Where's the fire at? Because the intent was to hit 30 millimeter all around the outskirts and at least distract these guys so we can get up in there, right? But that didn't happen. So just made the decision like, hey, we got to get this dude. The Taliban are right on him. If they grab this dude, he's going to screw up everything. Um, and we don't want him to get Echo, this dude anyway. Let's get him. And then it's me, the platoon leader, and like four other Afghans around the corner at the beginning of this firefight right here. And then that quickly just changed to me and the platoon leader. Everybody else left. <laughs> hey, what's up? I like how you hey, said they left. Going? Yeah, they weren't, they weren't about that. They were like, right, man, it's a little bit hey, too crazy. Courtyard. Well, at gunfire, that's, that's from 25 meters away, and I was pretty impressed when I'm pounding. They left, they don't come back. Um, I mean, it wasn't fun around the corner, so maybe I don't blame them. I don't know. <clears throat> and then there's a little lull, trying to drag this dude back around the corner. Um, we we killed the guys that were bounding on us, and Alpha, we killed Alpha, for sure one machine gun position. And then there's a couple other guys in the woods, and there was another machine gun that I thought we killed because we, we we located that position. 
Um, but yeah, we didn't. Know. I don't know if he was reloading or he was just crawling to a better position. But he opened back us, back up us on, back up, back up on us here in a minute. Alpha, copy. That was a friendly location. We have second. There's no cover around the corner either. It's just terrifying. You're just in this fight. No You're trying to kill these dudes quickly. Um, um, that grenade after they, I thought we killed that other PKM gunner, but. Alpha, we are taking effective fire. Is Chuck good? Zulu, you good? I'm hit. Hey, Zulu's hit. So who's this guy coming running right here? So that's me. Um, right here? Yeah, so okay. yeah, that's me. And then at that point, it was before that last volley of fire I'd taken a round to the leg, which knocked me forward. And then another round hit my my right um, shoulder blade up top, and that bullet went through the brachial nerve complex and the brachial artery and then locked. Back, yeah, but, um, and then I was pissed but I knew what this machine gun was after that and I was like I'm going to kill this dude I was so pissed and uh, he had to reload because the PKM only has a 100 round belt so the rest of the rounds went around me uh, now I got this son of a bitch and I got it but I couldn't use my arm it wouldn't work I couldn't bring my weapon up to fire um, so another Afghan magically appeared next to me so I was like hey man drag this dude get him off so we don't see in this video is I come around the corner and then you know they get they get the Afghan in there well, let me ask you. So when you're hit, this, this of course, isn't the first time you've been hurt and stuff like that. You get back there. They bring him back. What's going on through your mind? Because I, I talk to you about that a lot. I always ask you, what's going on through your mind? What What are you trying to figure out? What are you prioritizing in your body? Uh, you really should go back to your training. I mean, when you're when all those chemicals are dumping in your body like that, you're, you're real finite. Even your memory goes like I, I talk about this stuff in broad strokes but if you ask me to remember like very minute details around the corner like, it's impossible and that's how you you can usually tell when somebody's bullshitting about a war story if they're telling you like all these finite details when you're in that stress mode you don't have the ability or your body just shuts down that memory it just it's really weird it's almost like you're amnesic um and i just thought it was me but doing a lot of studies it's it's like that for everybody um it's almost like you go down to tunnel vision it's like the first time you do close quarters combat or something you kind of you're so stressed and you're thinking about so many things that you can see through. It's like you're looking through a straw. It's the same way when in combat, when your stress is at high and you're really just relying on your training and that's it. So like the thought process there is, is just whatever you nailed into it over and over and over again. And so when all this happens, uh, you cut out a little bit. I want to do your injuries one more time. Cause I want everyone to understand exactly what happened. You, you cut out a little bit when you were explaining all the injuries that happened. Oh, for, okay. So when I got shot in the knee, that knocked me forward, and then that next bullet hit my hit my scapula or my my right, right shoulder blade, went through the brachial nerve complex and the artery, and then that bullet lodged in the lower back, and then one bullet nicked my butt. But yeah, so it, it destroyed my ability to use my right arm, and then it hit that that artery back there, so I was bleeding out internally. So you have sent me a picture, and I'm pretty sure this is the right one, but I'm going to add it into the screen, and I want you to tell me if this, I think this is the one that you sent me after all this happened, correct? 
Yep. So spot where there's no blood, that's that's where the blood pressure just destroyed all muscle tissue, and that's where it pushed everything away. So you actually put your hand in there if you the doctors are like, yeah, you can put your hand, you can go in that wound and put your hand in there. There's there's nothing there. Okay, so when we talked about this, and you and I had talked about what we were going to talk about on the show, um, we had we had said that you want to talk about why you were doing the thing that you were doing, why you chose to go into that. Um, and we talked about it a little in the very beginning that you thought you had outmaneuvered them, but they had outmaneuvered you. Um, any thoughts when you got out of that? I know, of course, like you said, at that moment, you're not thinking of anything. Later on, though, when you look back on it, what were the lessons learned from that? Well, even the lessons, like when you go around that corner, right, you know that you're making the conscious decision that I'm a single American with a number of Afghans going around this corner into a very close ambush where somebody else just got shot. So why do you make that decision? That's, you know, at that point in time, you just go through all the logical outcomes. Like this is the best decision we can make. We're probably going to get shot up when we go around the corner. It's an occupational hazard. This is how we accomplish the mission. If we don't do this, it's mission failure. This is what we're going to do. We break that threshold, which is like when you're clearing a room, there's stop the people behind you. So you're only, de- you have two decisions when you brick away, if you're going in for like some kind of close quarters battle, put everything in there needs to be killed or you're going to die trying. And that's it. If there's a threat room. And that's kind of the mindset you have going around that corner is okay. We're going to go around here and we're going to fight this until I'm dead or they're dead, but I get to do it around the corner somehow. Um, and that dude was just, we didn't get him around that fast because he was still alive. He was talking and he wasn't that badly injured. But he was dead weight, and there was no way to grab him. And it was like in this weird, like shit ditch, and that was infuriating in itself. Um, but then when it goes to the decisions and must learn as far as like what was going on, thinking back, I mean, there's, there's plenty of minute things. It's like okay, I would have put my weapon on auto and swept across where the, this PKM could have been. Small stuff like that. But as far as like major decision lessons learned, it's um a lot of sustains like we trained some of the stuff over and over again to, the, to the point to where it was very automatic you know with the way we had our battle position collection points with our pair there and everything set up that was sustained. um the afghans are kind of like annex most of those guys aren't fighting for their kind of survive they're trying to make a paycheck so you're always going to have about 25 of those guys that are really badass and they're going to fight to the death and they're super brave the bravest people ever seen and the rest of them probably aren't going to stick around, right? And, and you just know that in your calculus when you're doing things. And you, and you know the guys because you train with them. You know who's going to be awesome and who's not. Um, in that particular situation, the platoon leader was a badass. He was in the front. Um, and there was another guy. And then the special forces guy that you see treating me in the video next, he was he was a pipe hitter. But that was really it. Everybody else was just a low-level private. And, and they're, they're, trying, they're probably high, right? They probably smoked some hash before we went out on that little patrol. So here's the question at all, but it, no, 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 that did. So here's the question though. When you see all of that and you train on it coming back and like you said, you know, who's good and who's bad, but you still have to take out. That's kind of you guys' job is to train these forces and get them up that we've talked about it a bunch of times where you can plus up 12 men to 1200, uh, by the, by the power that you put into them. When you have to do that, does it ever feel like that it might be insurmountable when you're going out on these combat operations? Because when you look around, you saw a lot of them, and by your own account, there's only a few of them that are pretty good. 
that's got to be on the front of your mind doing this every single time you go do it. Yeah, but when our mission, we do mitigate a lot of risk with our with our fire pair and everything else that we have and use. You know, if, if you put us out and you said, okay, you have no indirect fires and you have no aircraft, different story, right? You It would be insurmountable. Like, there'd be no way to do it. Um, but you try to stack everything you can in this joint effects environment for you that, that you're using all your signal stuff and you're using all your all your direct fires and all your sensor platforms and everything that you have that's kinetic and non-kinetic to, to really dominate that space that gives you that edge even if you have most of your guys that, that suck right that's what gives us the edge of the battlefield in those environments um but you're talking about you know we went in with 78 people 300 800 people were estimated to be on the ground and those numbers were real because they completely enveloped us but we can we can still go out there and i was the only casualty besides the afghan that mission which is pretty good for the odds um, but we're always going into situations like that. And then we've always got like, a balanced risk. What do we have? Like, I remember there was one mission in Afghanistan, you know, after this, it was a year after this, we went in and, and nobody wanted to find this mission. Like, Hey, it's the clouds are low. Even, um, the one sixtieth, the special operations aviation regiment, like, Hey man, like we don't normally fly in conditions like this. We'll take you guys in there, but, uh, there's no Apaches that can observe the HLZ. You've got no aircraft that can see. This seems kind of stupid. And our commander's like, it's on you guys. Um, we need to do this mission, but if you guys aren't comfortable with the risk, and we're not going to do it like, hey, but we got 120 dudes, we got a mortar, and we've got XYZ. Let's go do it, right? So we went in there. I think it was, was uh, we had 14 Americans on the ground and, you know, 100 and something Afghans for that particular mission. But we were comfortable with that. It didn't seem insurmountable because we said, okay, we have we have organic fires right now. Um, we're, gonna, we're able to link up with this Afghan core that has these vehicles within X amount of time. So, it was a real weird situation when we got there. We linked up with some Afghans like, hey, if you guys don't want this beaten zone over here, you're all going to die. And looking at it, it looked like it was out of the movie Predator. You know, the scene where they like hose down all the woods. That's what it looked like. All the, the woods were non-existent. They had rocks up against the wheels of their vehicles. So those wouldn't get shot out. All the bunkers were destroyed. There was like um, un, like mortar rounds everywhere that hadn't blown up that the Taliban had hit them with. And then this whole field was like destroyed. Then we went in there um, and cleared that area out. But those Afghans like, you guys are crazy. Like, if you go in there, you're not coming out. But that was a decision that we had to do or we had to make. And then we went in there, mission accomplished, and then we left. Okay, so last question about that, and it's another mind state question. When you do missions like that, when you go in there and people say, we don't usually fly in there, it's not going to happen. People are saying, if you go in there, you're not coming back out. I always ask, and, and I feel like I know the answer already, but for people listening, why do you do it? I've asked it to a ton of guys that have gone into the fray. Why do you do it? You see everything is against you from the beginning. Mentally, why go forward? You minimize and mitigate all that risk through the, the planning that goes into it, right? You, I mean, you do. You still, you're not just like, oh, shit, we're going to go in there and fly by the seat of our pants type of thing. And you do it because it's our job. For one, you know what the mission is. And we all volunteered for this. So it's what we like to do. It's like a football team. Like You're not going to. You're not going to find a professional football team that doesn't want to go play the game, right? They're, they don't want to go play the game. This is just playing the game. This is what we volunteer to do. It's, it is a warrior culture. Um, the Army exists to fight and win wars, which are brutal and unforgiving. That's what we do. Um, so we go do those missions because, especially as Green Berets and Special Forces, we signed up to go in with a very low American footprint with little to no resources and, a, and accomplish impossible tasks. That's what we do. We're not the sexy. We're not Delta Force. We're not, you know, your SEAL Team 6 guys that have – all these resources were very non-sexy. We 
going to want to want to manipulate the environment around us to achieve an state footprint and it's not always sexy and it's mostly against insurmountable odds but most of the time we come out on top right sometimes we don't but again occupational hazards so you do it because it's just your job it's like same thing as a cop like why did, why did you do that it was my job Right. And, and I feel like that's the answer, but I think a lot of people look at it and they don't understand why people are doing it or why people take it, uh, take it personal when you talk about that job or when you, uh, marginalize the job, because I think that happens a lot in today's society with law enforcement, first responders, military, those jobs are very marginalized to people and they don't think about everything that goes into it or the baggage that you'll be carrying on the backside of it. Yes, I mean, that's true. I'd, I'd make the argument that most first responders probably go through a lot more stress than most military people, even guys that go back-to-back combat deployments. You know, I mean, you look at your, your standard fire station. Those guys are going out every day dealing with something, right? Um, your paramedics are always dealing with something. They're seeing traumatic stuff every single day of their life. Um, but again, they volunteered for that job. It's what they chose to do. It's not like we're in a society. It's a caste system where you're selected and you got to go, I don't know, put your finger in a bowl and it tells you what you're going to do in life, right? <laughs> You decide what you're going to do, and then you deal with it. Um, it'd be like me going to Pizza Hut and be like, all right, I'm working at Pizza Hut, but, man, I don't want to stick my hand in it. Oh, that's, that's hot. I'm going to burn myself. Like, no, I'm going to fucking take the job. Make some pizzas. I'll go work somewhere else. I think you did. Didn't you work at Pizza Hut or something like that growing up? I think we've talked about it before. Hell, yeah. I worked a lot of pizza. I worked at Amazio's Pizza when I was 16. <laughs> that's what it was. I, didn't you get the I got manager's fired. position? Yeah, I just got hired. The shift manager decided to do a bunch of LSD that night. And I got real confused by they all the game machines. I got all the money. I'm sitting in the back. I'm like, man, this money is just freaking me out. So I left a note. I was like, hey, I'm really sorry. Couldn't make the deposit. Um, I'll pick up my paycheck next week. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about what you have next, Chuck. Uh, what's coming up? How people can help you and where they can find you? Um, yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter, Chuck Ritter 7. You can find me on, on Twitter and or on Twitter, uh, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. And then, uh, you know, if you want to support a good cause, go to Talent Reach Foundation for Pineland Underground, just Pineland Underground Podcast. It's on all your platforms. And ethical podcast for the Special Warfare Center in School for the United States Army. So that's, we cover civil affairs, operations, and special forces. So if you want to know about that, and we're not just military topic related on that podcast either. So um, anything leadership wise, we try to keep the verbiage to where any civilian can understand it. If you're thinking about joining the army, um, there's a lot of stuff in there to, to help you with that. Or if you're getting out, there's a lot of stuff to help you with getting in business. You know, we got CEOs on there. We've got people that own companies and it's not just, it's just not focused on things internal to special forces or special operations rather. Well, I think it went great for the first time. Uh, you being the test monkey and everything. I think it, I think it went great. So, um, Guys, you can find him Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, Instagram is Charles P. Ritter. Uh, LinkedIn mm-hmm. is your name. Uh, and then I don't know what the Twitter handle is. What is it? Chuck Ritter 7. Okay, Chuck Ritter 7. Uh, also, you have a YouTube page, right? I do. There's not a lot of stuff on there, but it's just Chuck Ritter YouTube and pop up. Hey. Or if you type in Chuck Ritter shot, both, both videos pop up on that. You, you, you don't have to, you know, sell it so hard uh, for people to go check it out. All right, guys. So that's where you can find him. Make sure you uh, help out with the town's reach. 
Check him out on Instagram. Check him out on LinkedIn. You can check him out on Twitter and you can check him out on YouTube. So I think that's going to be it for our first live show. I think it went great. Now, you guys know if you ever want to find me, you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form like the live one that you're watching right now. But the one-stop shop for you dtdpodcast.net that's your audio your video chuck has his own page there it's got pictures of him it's got his bio it's got all of his links where you can go find him and of course this is going to be there too now it's christmas time everyone's into their pumpkin spice everyone's into their flavored coffee so like every week Go check out our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. They're an officer-owned business, and they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And unlike Chuck, I am going to back this up and say I completely condone the use of this coffee. So if you go to policecoffee.com, put in the code DJK10, that'll give you 10% off your order. You can set up memberships, you can set up subscription services, or you can just buy them one bag at a time. But make sure you go check them out. Everybody likes pumpkin spice, everyone likes flavored coffee, and they're there for you right now. Guys, that's going to be the show for this week. We thought we would give you a live one. Hit us up with your questions. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. That's Chuck. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.